right, good morning, church. All right, a little bit, little bit louder than the 9 a.m. It's a competition. Good morning, church. All right, that was it right there. Good job. Uh, my name is Frankie Tool. I get the privilege of being the student pastor here at Connection Church. And uh, <clears throat> before I get started, I want to say it's one of my, one of the best things about my life is my job, getting to be a student pastor. Um, and I just love the students, and I, I love speaking to them. And when I got the opportunity to speak to y'all, I was like 50% of that. But it's okay, because I know the students are cool. Probably about half of y'all are about as cool as the students. I'm just joking. Y'all are all cool. Even though I don't know you, you're all cool. Um, but today, I can't wait to jump into our passage that we're going to get to talk about. It's uh, probably one of the most popular passages uh, in the Bible. We've probably all heard it. So if you have a Bible... Uh, I hope you, I hope that you do uh, turn to John chapter 13. If not, uh, luckily, it'll be on the back of the screen. And as we turn there, <clears throat> I'm going to set up the scene for us, kind of remind us of where we are in this point in the, in the book of John. Uh, so let's remember last week, Ethan talked about uh, Jesus entering town on a donkey. Hopefully you remember that, where he, he came into town. They had the palm tree branches, and they shouted Hosanna as he entered into the town. And this is just a few days later. That was on Sunday this is on a Thursday night <clears throat> that uh, Jesus and the 12 disciples are up in what people call the upper room. They're in a room of the house. It's just him. It's just them. And it's, it's real intimate setting. So just think like one on the small group dinner is what it is. It says Jesus and his small group having dinner. And Jesus know this, knows this. The disciples doesn't, uh, don't. But that this will be Jesus' last supper. That's why it's called the last supper. The last time he shares a meal with these people before he, he goes to the cross. And think if, if you in your life, maybe you've experienced this or not, if you get to sit bedside by like a parent or something, it's their last words. Like it's the last thing they're going to say to you. It's the last time you get to hear them. This is what this, is what this scene is. It's very, very close and, and intimate. And I, um, and I think that it really spoke out to uh, John. Because if you, if you look through the, throughout the book of John, this, this one dinner takes up about uh, four chapters of the book of John, and that's about a fifth. So this, this one night was so important to John that he, he wrote so much about it. And tonight we're going to see exactly how that dinner started. So before we hop into the scripture, let's pray and get our hearts right. Dear God, thank you for this day. God, we just thank you for what you've done. We thank you for loving us. We thank you uh, for your word and exactly what it means, God, and how it speaks and applies to us even to this day. God, I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word, God, that we wouldn't leave it at our ears, but it would go to our feet and to our lives, God, and we, we'd live it out. <clears throat> I just thank you for all you've done, God. I just pray for our hearts as we get ready to hear you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so turn with me, John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, so we're going to pause right here. The Passover festival, if you don't know, was like this annual celebration that, that the Jews had to celebrate uh, Moses freeing the Israelites from slavery. It's this whole story. It's in Exodus. Israelite people were in slavery, and God sent this man named Moses to go free them. But before he did, he'd go to, he'd go to Pharaoh, the, the king who had enslaved the uh, Israelites, and he'd say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say no over and over again. And then finally, God sends these things called the ten plagues. And then this last one, angel of death. And the angel of death would go by each, and he would, he would kill the firstborn son of each household. Unless unless the household took a perfect lamb, unblemished lamb, sacrificed the lamb, took his blood, and then painted it over the door. Then, then this angel of death would pass over. That's why it's called the Passover. Pass 
over the house. And this is a celebration because this is a big event that, that the Jews would take place in once a year. And this was this, was this time. All right, and the whole point of the Passover in Exodus well, it was not because it's a singular event that we can look at, but because it points to Jesus, because Jesus also was the perfect unblemished lamb that would, that would be sacrificed and have his blood poured out on the cross so that we would be passed over when God sees us through a relationship in him. So this whole thing, the whole Passover festival, is it's just amazing to me it happens the same weekend Jesus would die. But the whole point of the Passover points to the cross. And it's no coincidence that this same weekend is when Jesus would go and die on the cross. So let's keep going. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. All throughout the book of John, we see Jesus keep saying, it's not my time, the hour has not come, it's not my time. And finally, the hour had come. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What more comforting thing to know that Jesus loves us to the very end. That there's, there's no end to his love, to the, to the end of us is when he loves us too. So there's no end, to the end he loved them. Verse two, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we're going to set the scene just a little bit deeper. I'm a visual thinker. I love to see things when I think, so I'm going to try to do that for you. Let's, let's, let's try to visualize what's actually going on. So think, think right here. During this time, there is like no other transportation essentially except for walking and maybe like cattle and horses. So let's, let's think about what Jesus has done. He's getting on his knees to wash the feet of these people who have probably walked everywhere. All right, and if you walk in, and if you know where they live, it was like a beach with no ocean, so a whole lot of sand. And they're walking around, and there's no plumbing, so there's probably a whole bunch of nastiness on the ground, and their feet are disgusting. And coming from me, I'm already not a foot person. I hate feet, don't touch my feet, don't come close. And then these feet are not just feet, they're disgusting feet. And so we can guess the average person like in this time period not only had like gross feet compared to our standards, but like extremely gross feet with like stuff we don't want on feet, on their feet. And this was, this was considered the lowest position in their society what Jesus would do. Because right? it, was, it was custom when, when you would walk into a, a house or into this place, because everyone had such dirty feet, there's always someone there to wash the feet. All right, because you don't want all that stuff in your house, so they, they'd wash the feet. It was customary for this to happen. All right, so they're sitting around this table, and they're waiting for someone to wash their feet, and that's when Jesus steps in. He gets, gets out of his chair. He gets down on the ground, wraps a towel around his waist, gets a bowl, pours some water in it, and goes to each disciple washing their feet. And it's just crazy to me that Jesus, the King of kings, the, the, the author of the universe, would be the one to get on his knees and wash the feet. And the last thing Jesus would do uh, before he would go to the cross is, is, is not a miracle. It is crazy to me. The last thing Jesus does isn't a miracle. It isn't given a gift, but the last thing he would show his disciples, the last thing they would see from him was him serving them. Not him uh, healing somebody, but serving, uh, serving them. So it has to be pretty important that the last thing Jesus would do would be to serve them. 
So serving is what we're going to talk about today. Serving in your hearts towards serving. And then, then we get this part of the passage. Probably one of my favorite parts in this is, is this conversation Jesus has with Peter. So Jesus washing everybody's feet. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? If you think about this for a second, Peter has to, uh, he, he's not thinking well because Jesus has already washed like four other people's feet. And it's like, he's going down the line, obviously. He's like, are you about to wash my feet? And you'll be like, Peter, come on. He's washing everybody's feet. What do you think he's doing? Yes, he's washing feet. And then Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. This is such comforting words that we can really fall back on. We don't always understand what's going on in the moment, but we can always trust in Jesus, and we'll see his purpose on the other side. Think about the toughest things you've been, been through in your life. Now, you don't understand them at the time, but when you get through them and you look back and you can see Jesus had a true purpose in that. It's one of the most comfort, comforting things. So verse 8, Peter says, No, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And a lot of times through the book of John and all the Gospels, we see, we see Peter has this bad problem of putting his foot in his mouth. That's a pun intended. He puts his foot in his mouth. But one thing I love about Peter, one thing I love about Peter, how, how, how crazy he is, how, how he sometimes just says the wrong thing so often. Man, there's one thing that's great about him. is that his heart is always for Jesus. Because look what he says. I think Jesus just said, if I, if, if I don't, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then verse 9, Peter says, Then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You know what Peter's saying? Jesus, if it takes you washing my feet to have a part with you, I don't want just my feet washed. I want my whole body washed. I want the whole thing given up to you. And Peter didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But, but the, the fact is, his heart is saying, Jesus, I want all of you. I want every bit that you got. I want every part of you, Jesus. How often in your life does your life look like somebody saying, I want every part of Jesus? Or are you just there for the convenience when he can, he can clean us up and make it look better? Do you want Jesus for his wholeness, for all that he is, or just the good parts that you can pull out from him? What do you want from Jesus? Then he says, verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And what he's talking about right here is salvation. Even though we still sin post-salvation, so even after we, we are saved and we have salvation, we still sin, that doesn't mean we need another bath. Meaning we don't need to be saved again. Just because you, you sin after salvation does not mean you have to you be saved again and have this process. No, when Jesus saved us, he did it once and for all. But what he is saying is this. Christians in the room, what he is saying is this. We need to address the sinfulness in our life. That's what he was doing to Peter. He was dressing, addressing what was dirty on him. His feet were dirty. Man, there's a lot of times where we have sin in our life and just because we're saved doesn't mean we ignore it. We have to address the sin and give it over to Christ and, and admit it and repent from it. It's a constant thing. So verse 11, he keeps going and he says, For he knew who was going to betray him. 
And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Something crazy to me in this story is that Jesus, this whole time, knew Judas would betray him. But he still washed his feet. He knew Judas was the one to hand him over to be be hung on the cross. He was basically his murderer. He knew it. And what did he do? The last thing he did to Judas was wash his feet. Do you love the people that are just easy to love? Or do you love the people that are hard to love? There's probably no harder person to love than the person that's responsible for your death. And we see Jesus get on his knees and slowly wash his feet. I will never, ever get over that fact. Because I just think about myself. Like, What would I do if I, if I knew, if I was sitting across the table from the person who was, responsible, or was going to be responsible for my death? I'm not washing his feet. I'm probably going to try to fight him or run away or something. But Jesus humbly still washes Judas' feet. In verse 12 we see when he, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So he's not, he's not talking about us literally going into like our workplace and our home and every person we see, we like snatch their socks and shoes off and wash their feet. But what, he, what he's saying is the example he set was an example of serving and loving. So as we go into our workplace and our home and into our daily life, we, set, we show the example Christ had for us, which is loving and serving. So he has set the example for us. In verse 16, it says, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And in verse 17, he, he, he ends that giving us an action step. So you'll be blessed if you do them. Like go and do them. I know so often we come to church and we, we sit in the seat and we hear a message that convicts us and we know that we should go into our life and live a different way. But what we do is we walk out the church and we leave it there. It's an action step. We have to go into the world showing or doing the, the example Christ has set for us, which is loving and serving others. So this, this passage ends with an action step. Go do what I have done is what Jesus said. Which is one of the best parts about our God and about Christianity. Is that Jesus doesn't say, go do what I say. He says, go do what I've done. He's the example. He's done it for us. He he showed us how to do it. Every other religion is just go and do what this says. But Jesus said, I did it, so now you can do it. And it's so amazing. He says, go do what I've done. We have a God that sets an example for us. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three quick things. Just three things. The first one is this. is Jesus' example. Jesus' example. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is perfectly pointing to what he would do on the cross. So just think, Jesus, he serves and he loves by washing the disciples' feet. What does he do on the cross? He serves us and loves us as he is nailed and died on the cross. Jesus sets an example for us and he says in verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Remember, that's not talking about actual 
washing feet, but going and serving. Verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So what Jesus literally says is that he is the example. So what is an example? Think about like a math problem. Go back to math class. Think when your, your, your teacher's doing an example on the board so that you can see how they've done it, so that you can replicate that on your own. Jesus is the example. He's done it, and now we see it, and now we replicate it in our own life. So what example did Jesus really set? What did he really do? The first thing is this. He loved others. He loved others. What is Jesus' love? His love is a perfect love. Verse 1 says he loved them to the very end. Jesus has a love unlike any person ever. He has a love for me and for you, a love that can never be broken. I remember giving my life to Christ and experiencing a love like I'd never felt before. A love I'd never felt before because it's a perfect love. And what does this love look like? Well, the first thing or the first way it looks is like this. He, he meets people where they are. He meets people where they are. So I'm going to use two examples. The first one is this, Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, we see this man, Nicodemus, and, and he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. That basically means he's like a pastor of pastors, that he knows the Bible so well that he teaches it to other teachers of the Bible. All right, he, he probably memorized almost all of the Old Testament. He knew everything that the Bible said. He, he, he knew how to live his life. But listen, he comes and he meets Jesus one night in the middle of the night, and he just doesn't believe Jesus is who he says he is. So Jesus has a conversation with him, and he tells him, listen, the only way to eternal life is to be born again. And he's not talking about physical, but spiritually, and to truly trust in him. Jesus met him where he was. And also think about just the next chapter over, John 4, the woman at the well. And the woman at the well is the opposite of Nicodemus. All right, The woman at the well is, is, had five husbands. She's getting around. All right? she, she's doing what she wants, when she wants, with whoever she wants. She's living her life the way she wants to. And Jesus meets her at a well. And he tells her, listen, this life that you're living will not fulfill you. All these husbands, they won't fulfill you. Drink me. He's at, a, he's at a well. He says, drink living water, me, and I will fulfill you. He meets her where she was. And I think about my own life. I think about Jesus meeting me. I think back in 2019, I went to this a conference called Passion. And I go there, and me and, and my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, where we're sitting there, and we had just listened to someone. I, I remember so well, she leans over to me, and she says, Frankie, I don't think I'm saved. And me stuck in my religion, I think I said something like, it's all right, you understand it, we're good people. But I remember in my head thinking, man, I don't think I got it either. I don't think I understand what Jesus has really done for me on the cross. I don't think I really understand what my sin has done to me. I don't think I understand that it separated me from him. And then Jesus, he, he met me where I was at that point, and he works in my life, and then I give my life over to him. That's what he does. That's what a perfect love does. It meets people where they are. Jesus meets us where we are. And then... What he does after this is so great. He meets us where we are and then points us to something greater. 
which is himself, a, a true satisfaction, a true fulfillment in him. So he meets us where we are. What a perfect love. And then he, he not only does that, but he, he genuinely cares for us. He has an intentional love. The, the creator of the universe has an intentional love for me and for you. Or right, think about how, how it says in the Bible, he, he leaves the 99 for the one. For someone who created it all, the, the stars, the moon, the sun, everything. He has such a personal relationship. And I think about this night and how he took time to wash every single disciple's feet. One by one. Each one washing their feet. I mean, it's not like he got a water hose like we do at the beach and sprayed them all off. No, he's going one by one to their feet, washing, scrubbing, rinsing off over 12 times. It's a personal thing. He went person to person. That's what he does with us. When you truly believe in him, you feel that personal love that is just between you and God. It's a personal relationship. When someone experiences the love of Jesus, they feel a love that can't be replicated and can't be beat by anything else. It's only the love of Jesus that makes you feel that way. So not only did he do that, but he also, he, he loves unconditionally. He loves unconditionally, and the world's love is the biggest difference between Christ's love and the world's love. The world's love has conditions around it. Or I think about myself, and this is the example I use at students. I have a conditional love for the Braves. All right, let's think in 2021, they won the World Series, and I love the Braves. I wore a Braves shirt every day. I, wear a, I wore a Braves hat every day. I mean, all Braves, everything. But then last year, they drop a goose egg and lose. I tell you what I didn't do was wear Braves shirts the next couple of days. I actually put them in a trash bag and didn't want to touch them for a while. Listen, it's a conditional love. It's what the world's love is like. It's conditional. If you do this, we'll love you. If you act like this, we'll love you. If you think this way, we'll love you. But Jesus' love, J.D. Greer says it's so good. He says, there's nothing we can do to make God love us less and nothing we can do to make God love us more. It's unconditional. There's no way to earn God's love more or to lose God's love. He loves us the same as he did yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His love for us is truly unconditional. Listen, everyone in here, listen to this. It, it, it does not matter what you have done. It doesn't matter about your past life. It doesn't matter who you were yesterday. Jesus loves you. The Bible is full of jacked up people. They messed up and still found the love of Christ. I think about Noah, who was a drunk. Moses, who was a murderer. David was an adulteress and a murderer. Peter denied Jesus. Paul was basically a terrorist. Listen, the Bible is full of jacked up people that experience the love of Christ. And their life changes forever after that. There is nothing you have done that will make you lose the love of Jesus. I think if someone could have unearned Jesus' love, it could have been me. I could have, I'm that person that could have unearned it. I think for so long in my life, I falsely represented Jesus. Walking around saying I'm a Christian. I was a huge hypocrite. All right, and I, I wasn't living for him. So if someone unearned Jesus' love, it should have been me. 
I mean, nothing's worse than a hypocrite. I, I, I didn't truly represent what I was saying I was doing. But listen, that doesn't matter because Jesus still loves me. And he still loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus still loves you. His love is unconditional. It's perfect. But not only was his example through loving, but also his example was through serving others. He served others. All right, think about what you would do if it was your last night on earth. Like if you knew tonight was your last night on earth, what would you do? Jesus knew and Jesus decided to serve others. He loved them, he served them. So what does it look like for, or what did it look like for Jesus to serve others? The first thing is this, he was selfless. He was very selfless. Jesus made less of himself to make more of someone else. Think about what Jesus is doing at this moment when he's washing the disciples' feet. He's getting down on his hands and feet to wash the feet of the disciples. This is the perfect picture of what he was actually doing throughout his whole life. So you got to think, he, he gets off his seat in heaven, takes off the outer garment of glory, comes down to earth, dresses as a human, then serves us for 33 years, dies on the cross for us in our place, and then retakes his place on the throne. There's no more selfless thing than that, that, that Jesus would step down from heaven. I remember this, the reality of this hitting me, that he stepped down from heaven, that he, he, he came down to do this one thing, which was to die for us on the cross. Not only would he do that, but when, when he would do that, he would, he would be mocked and beaten and spit at and cursed at and have a crown of thorns shoved on his head, then nailed to the cross and die for us. Somebody came down from heaven to do that for us. There's no greater picture of serving than that. There's no greater act of service. If anyone deserved to be paraded around and celebrated, it was Jesus. He's the only perfect person. He deserved to be celebrated. He deserved to have a parade. But he didn't do that. Instead, he humbles himself and serves. He did what nobody else wanted to do. He, he did what no one else was willing to do. Now think, at, at, think about the table. They're, they're all sitting at the table. And any of the disciples at any point could have gotten up and said, actually, I'll wash everyone's feet. I'll do this. But no, the disciples felt that they were, they were above that. They were too good to lower themselves down to that low mark. Jesus, however, Jesus helped to do it. He gets down and he washes their feet. And then the last thing through his serving he did was he, he pointed everything he did to the glory of God. Everything Jesus did was to the glory of God. Jesus' serving wasn't to boast in his ability or, or to have people look at him, but to, to point glory to God the Father, that he is the, the, he is the one who gets the glory. And in just a few chapters, uh, when Jesus is actually praying to God the Father, he says this, Father... The hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Listen, Jesus understood that even his death on the cross had the purpose to glorify God. That everything he did was was to glorify him and to point to, to God and what he has done. So in our life, do we, do we point the things we do to him? Or is it about shining a spotlight on ourselves? And then the last example Jesus sets for us is this, is that he addresses sin. Is that Jesus addresses sin. He, he addressed it by dying on the cross because of it. That sin was, was too big enough, too, there was a big enough problem, they had to come and die because of it. He sees that we need him, that we couldn't do it on our own. I think so often we, we get in this, this rhythm of just undermining how big of a problem sin is. Sin is such a big problem that it separates us from God for eternity. But Jesus was willing to make up that gap by dying on the cross for us. Sin is such a problem that a perfect human being had to be beaten and killed on a cross. He addresses sin through the cross. He sees that we needed him. And he also sees that, uh, we also see through the conversation with Peter that, that we need to be repenting of our sin. When he tells him that once you've had a full bath, you, you don't need another one, what he's saying is we need to constantly repent of the sin in our life. And he tells us that we should not take sin as a light matter. So how often do we just play off sin as this little thing when really it's, it's the biggest problem in the world. So Jesus gives us the example of himself, that he loves us, that he serves us, that he addressed address sin for us. So this leaves us with a response. So point number two is our, our response. What is our response going to be? Jesus puts it on us. Jesus shows us what to do. He, he was the example for us. Now it's up to us. It's our response. What are we going to do? And this fact that what Jesus has done should change everything. Now looking at his example should change everything in our life. In verse 12 he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I set you an example. He literally says the words. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So it is now on us, believers, it's now on us to follow the example set for us, which is Christ. And we have to remember, we, we can't follow the example of Christ if you're, if you're going to take away anything from today, this is what I want you to know. We can't follow the example of Christ if we're not even in a relationship with him. You, you can't show the love of Christ if you haven't truly experienced the love of Christ. That the example of Christ is unattainable without knowing him. You're not going to be a Christ-like example and not have Christ in your life. We, we, we can't look and want to be something that we don't even know. You can't want to be something you don't know. So as we, as we look at what it looks like to be Christ-like, this isn't a list of things for us to jot down to try to be better at. Instead, it should be a mirror holding up and saying, is this what my life looks like? 
If my life doesn't look like this, do I truly know Jesus? Have I truly experienced his love? Have I truly given my all to him? So the first thing is this. We're going to look at Christ's example. The first thing is this. What should our response look like? Well, simply, we should love others. If Jesus' example was to love others, then we should love others. And Joby Martin's definition of love is so great. This is what he says. Love is your joy in the Lord expressed towards others at great expense to yourself. Love is your joy in the Lord expressed towards others at great expense to yourself. That means that from the response, from the, from the joy that you have loving the Lord, from the Lord, that from this joy we are now able to love others. So that means if you're not able to love others, if you don't find true joy in the Lord, if you can't find that joy, you can't love others. Then we love others by making little of ourselves, by making ourselves less and making them more. So to live for Christ is to love like Christ. To live for Christ is to love like Christ. If you skip down a little bit more in chapter 13 and verse 34, it says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Jesus tells us a command he's given us is to love one another. That we must love others. If you're a Christian, we must love others. Emphasis on the word must. Too, too many times Christians forget the most important command Jesus gave us was to love God and to love others. Not to love God and tithe more. Not to love God and read the Bible. Not to love God and quit cursing. Not to love God and don't drink alcohol. Not to love God and don't have sex outside of marriage. He says love God and love others. If you do those two things, everything else falls in line. Because if you love God, you love his word and you respect what he says. If you love others, you're not going to hate others. You're going to show them the love of Christ. You're going to be missional to them. So we love God and we love others and that sums everything up. But if you're not willing to love God and you're not willing to love others, then you're not a true Christ follower. Like if you're not willing to do both of those things, not just one, if you, if you, if you say, I'll love God, but I can't love others, you might not truly know Christ. Or if you say, I'll love others, but not love God, you don't truly know him. Love God and love others. Because those two things, those two things will, will fall in line and everything else will just flow out of you. But part, part of the problem is this, is that we, we've made a false definition of love. We've weakened the word love. Like I can say I love my wife, I love the Braves, and I love steak. But all three of those things are different. And I love all three of those things in a different way. And we, we've weakened the word love. The love Christ means is an unconditional, unbreakable love for people. Not just tolerating people, but genuinely loving them. A lot of times we think if we're tolerating someone, that we're showing them love. Like if someone gets on our nerves and we don't punch them in the face, that that's love. That's not love. That's just not punching them in the face. That's tolerating them. Love is going out of your way, sacrificing something to show them that they have value. Make less of yourself and more of them. That's what love is. It's unconditional. So we're going to look at what it looks like for us to love like Christ. So what does it look like for you 
to meet people where they are. Because Jesus met people where they are. So if we're going to love like Jesus, that means we have to meet people where they are. And I think this means to understand different people have been through different lives. That nobody in here has lived the exact same life. That everybody looks different. That, that everybody's at a different place. But it's our responsibility, if you're a believer, it's your responsibility to, to not care where that place is for them. But to just meet them there. And to show them the love of Christ. That we love people despite their flaws. So what would it look like if you met people where they were? Like would, would love in your life change? That, that you see someone in need and you meet that need. That you see someone who needs accountability and you hold them accountable. You see someone who just simply needs to be loved on. And you just simply love them. What would it look like if we just met people where they were? It's like the greatest thing about the love of Jesus is that we don't have to like glamour ourselves up for it. We don't have to pretty ourselves up for the love of Jesus. Right? He meets us where we are. And if I didn't have to pretty myself up for Jesus, why would I expect someone to pretty themselves up for me? Our love is, we're responsible to love them where they are. And the greatest gift we can give other people is a true love for them. Is a true love for them, a true unconditional meeting them where they are love. So what would your love look like if you did that? What if we just loved people where they were? I think about this time in my life when I was, I was struggling, I was in sin. And Pastor Blake, he came over to my house and man, he just had this loving conversation. He met me where I was. To, he told me the sin I was living in was, was wrong and I needed to repent of it. And I did, and I remember growing closer to Christ through that. But it all started because someone met me where I was. Think about in your life. Think about the lowest point of your life. The, uh, in, uh, a person loves you at that moment. Think about how truly loved you felt by them. That you knew they truly loved you. That's the kind of love Christ is calling us into. To love people where they are and then point them to Christ. So do you, does your love meet people where they are? Then not just that, what does it look like for us to genuinely care for people? To have a true and intentional love. A one-on-one -on -one real love is so cool looking through the Bible, just seeing how Jesus cared for people. He just cared for all people. That He had a super intentional love. And I think in Luke 8, the story of the unclean woman. So Jesus is in this crowd and, and this unclean woman reaches out just to touch Jesus' garment. And in the middle of the crowd, Jesus stops, and he talks to her. And he heals her at that point. It's an, it's an intentional love. But even with surrounding people, he goes one-on-one -on -one with her. That's, that's the kind of love we're supposed to be showing, that our love is intentional, and it's not fake. A genuine, intentional love for others. It makes me think about those, those fake Facebook profiles. Those people who like comment on your picture and it goes something like this. Wow, you look so interesting. I can tell you are a really interesting person. I'd love for you to be an ambassador of whatever company and then like leaves a, a, a link. And then it's on the rest of the comments on that post. Like it's, it's obvious someone is copy, copying and pasting this. Like they don't truly think I'm an interesting person. They don't know me. It's not a real intentional love. Listen, that's not real love. Jesus is calling us to a love that doesn't look like that. 
Because a lot of times our love can look like that. Where it's just we put on a, a smile and we think if we smile and tell someone good morning that we've done our job. But people who need love know that's not true love. And they need the real love of Christ. Our love shouldn't look or feel fake. That we should truly want to intentionally love someone. Because the fake love isn't real love. It's not real love at all. This is what our love should look like. In the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, Love is patient. If you're a parent in here, let's read that again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. I know that speaks to me. So often I like to keep up with the wrongs people have done to me. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's the kind of love we're called into. It's one thing to love someone lovable, but it's another thing to love someone unlovable. And this passage is talking about loving all people, not just the lovable people. Not just the people that are closest to us, that are easy to love, but the people that it's hard to love. And a lot of us are missing out on showing people that love because we aren't willing to forgive them. We don't show people the love that they deserve because we're not willing to forgive them. If you're unwilling to forgive someone, listen, this is tough, but if you're not willing to forgive someone, you're walking in direct disobedience. Because the Bible is clear. This, this passage is clear. We're called to love everybody. And everybody means every single body in the world. So if you're, you're not willing to, to forgive someone and, and, and love them, you're walking in direct disobedience. So the question, do you have an intentional love? Do you have a love that is, is like one-on-one, it's relational? The same way God has a relational love. And then also, what does it look like for you to love others unconditionally? Like imagine if we had a love for others where it didn't matter what they said, how they treated us, or what they did, that we still love them no matter what. An unconditional love. Think about how our love a lot of the times is truly conditional. I think about in my marriage, like sometimes I think if I can wash the dishes, then my wife should like clean the floors. It's based off conditions. If I do this, you do this, but no. A true love is this. True love is really knowing and doing what you know you should do. Me washing the dishes, not expecting something in return. If we truly want others to see Christ's love for them through us, then we must have an unconditional love. Because again, it's the, it's the biggest difference between a worldly love and a Christ-like love. Is that it's unconditional so if we want others to see Christ through us, we have to have that unconditional love for them. So is your love for others strictly based off the conditions? Do you only love others for what you can get from them? Do you only love others if they do A, B, and C? Do you have a conditional love? Or do you have a love that looks like Jesus? An unconditional love. Not only do we have a responsibility to love others... So our, response, our response is to love others from Jesus' Jesus's example. But also, our response is to serve others. To serve others. And this is step two in the process. You, you, you can't 
and you won't truly ser serve others if you don't truly love them. Like if, if you don't love people, you're not going to truly serve them. So it's step two. How do we serve like Jesus, just like him? Number one, we got to be selfless. you got to be selfless. And this is probably the most difficult thing for us humans to do. We don't like to be selfless. We'd rather be selfish. I'd rather make it all about me, not about someone else. I want to make it about Frankie. And our culture has done nothing but make it worse. It tells us it's about getting what we want. Find your happiness. Expressing what we believe. And then condemning anyone who doesn't believe the same. But the heart of Jesus is completely opposite to that. We're called to make less of ourselves. Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourself that says value others above yourself not looking to your own interest but each of you to the interest of others we must we, we, we literally have to care about ourselves less and care about others more if you want to serve like Christ you care about yourself less and others more that when we go out into our daily lives, that we don't just make it about ourselves, but we make it about serving and loving others. So are you serving to get, or are you serving to give? Are you, are you, are you serving to, to get something in return? Or are you serving to, to give the love of Christ? Why do you serve? Why, when you serve, why do you do it? Then the, then the other thing we need to know about serving like Jesus is that we do the things nobody else will. Just the same way we saw Jesus do things that no one else wanted to do, we do the things nobody else will. Serving means to sacrifice something. Sacrifice your time, money, effort, ability. I know for me, a lot of times I like to tell my wife, hey, I'm going to serve you. And I go wash the dishes. And this sounds weird, but I really don't mind washing dishes. I can set my phone up on the windowsill, I can watch TV, and I'll wash dishes. It doesn't bother me. I'm not sacrificing anything to serve my wife. It's not true service because I'm not sacrificing something. I'm not, not doing something I wouldn't willingly do. It's about doing the things nobody else will do. I know at our office, one thing nobody ever wants to do is fill up the water tank on the coffee maker. No one ever wants to do it. I, I hate doing it. I know it's, it's little and dumb, but nobody wants to do it. Like if I walk out my office to go get a cup of coffee and I see the, the lights blinking and it needs more water, I'm just going to go ahead and take a bathroom break. I'm going to hope someone goes to get a cup of coffee before me and fills it up. So I don't want to have to because listen, that's a selfish, not servant's heart. Not willing to do what other, people's don't want to, other people don't want to do. But to have a true servant's heart means to do the things that nobody else wants to do, no matter how little. Doing things that you don't want to to make more of someone else. I can imagine the disciples laid back at the table, just waiting for someone to come in and wash their feet. And all of them thought, man, I am above this. I'm a disciple of Jesus. You see who I'm sitting at the table with? Why would I get on my knees and wash feet? That's not me, I'm above this. Man, just for Jesus to do it himself. And then it kind of makes sense why he says this in verse 16. He says, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
And the example Christ sets was that he was the only one at the table who was willing to do what no one else wanted to do. So what are the things in your life that you sometimes feel you are above doing? What are the things in your life, the things at your work, your, your, your home, wherever you go, that you just feel like you shouldn't have to do? Like, I'm above that. I don't have to do that. What are those things? And then ask yourself, if I started to do those things, what kind of gospel impact could I make? Like, if I did those things no one wants to do, could I, could I truly show others that the gospel has changed me and, and has, has made me have a servant heart? What are those things in your life? And then lastly, if we're going to look at Christ's example for serving, we have to do, in everything we do, we do it for the glory of God. Same way Jesus did everything he did for the glory of God, everything we do for the glory of God. So how often, how often do we serve for our own glory? How often do we, do we serve just to parade that we did it? Hey, I did this. Applaud me. That's not a true servant's heart. That, that we serve because we want the spotlight on ourselves and not God. So anytime we have alternative motives aside from giving God glory then we're not truly serving with a servant's heart. And the best way to think about it is this. Ask yourself this question. It rhymes, so it'll help. What do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? And a lot of us think, that's not us. Like, I'm not a boss. I'm, not, I'm never the most powerful in the room. But at some point, every single one of us is the most powerful person in the room. Some of us literally are bosses at our work. We're managers. We have people that we're in charge of. Parents, you're in charge of your kids. When you're in a room with them, you're the most powerful. Sometimes it's as simple as like when you're riding, taking a road trip, and you have the aux cord. You're in the power in that situation. So in those moments, when we have power, how do we go about it? Do we like humbly serve and, and have humility when we have the most power? Or do we like to flex our power? You know, like your, your kids in the back saying, let's, let's listen to wheels on the bus. And then you play like your 80s and 90s rock music. You're not willing to, to serve them. You want to flex the power that you are in control. In these moments, do you point what you do towards God by serving and being humble? Or do you shine the spotlight on yourself? I know in my life, there's lots of times where I do this. And the best example is this. Every Wednesday night, when we come here to church, I feel like I've been here for forever. And high school students, I love every single one of you. But four hours of you can be a little tough sometimes. So at the end of it, I'm thinking, man, we have to clean up. I shouldn't have to do this. So what's so easy for me to do is just get the high school boys to do it. Because I have the power to, so I like to flex the power. Listen, this isn't a servant's heart. A servant's heart is doing the things that you don't want to do. Sacrificing yourself to, to make more of others. Being humble, not flexing that power. So what would it look like if everything we did, every time we served, we, we did it for one, one thing, to point glory to God.
Would the way you serve change? Because if it would, that means we're not serving for the glory of God now. What would it look like if we did that? And then the last thing is this for the example Christ sets us. Our response. Addressing sin. To address sin. Jesus shows us that it's necessary for us to address the sin in our life. That might mean addressing that we are in sin. And we're not in Christ and we don't know him. Then our response should be to believe in him. Or for believers, maybe it's addressing that we have sin in our life that we're not willing to confess and repent of. 1 John says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. It's so amazing we have a God that's faithful when we aren't. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So believers, is is there sin in your life you're unwilling to confess, you're unwilling to address that you just want to hide up? You don't want to talk about it in community. And when you go to connect group, you just you want to keep quiet about it. Is there sin like that in your life? For some of us in here, is, is there just the fact that sin runs rampant in your life? You don't really care about Jesus, and, and your response is to give it all over to Jesus, but you just don't want to. Where are you at? Do you address the sin in your life? And to bring this all to a question is this. Does your life look like someone who is living their life in Christ's example. Basically, is your life looking like Christ? The example Christ has set us, does your life look like that? If your life doesn't look like that, is it because you don't know Christ? And we all have this, we all have this. Point number three, we all have a decision. There's a decision to be made. Because just one day later after Jesus would wash the feet of the disciples, he would go and do the ultimate foot washing. Dying on the cross, being beaten, mocked, shamed, cursed at, spat at, yelled, have a crown of thorns shoved on his head, have nails driven through his hands and his feet, and then die on the cross for you and for me. That this foot washing was, was nothing but a representation of what was to come. That Jesus would love and serve us to the point of dying on the cross. So now we're presented with this decision. So what's the decision? It's to follow Christ. For a long time, I lived my life thinking that following Christ was like a scale. You know, because we scale everything in our world. Your weight has a scale. Your height has a scale. If you're in school, you have a grade scale. Sometimes you're scaled on your job. And it was just easy for me to categorize Christianity to a scale. That if I could be like a five Christian every day, then I was good. Like if I could maintain a, a five on the scale, then I was fine. That's, that's so not true. Later, I come to find out that, that being a follower of Christ, that following him, it isn't a scale. It's yes or no. You either are or you don't. You're either in him or you're not. You either love him or you don't. There's no scale to it. There's no only on Sundays. There's no just when it feels right. It's it's yes or no. You do or you don't. Being a follower of Christ is a yes or no question. So for the believer, it's this. Will Will you choose to look like Christ daily? 
Will, will you wake up knowing that your responsibility is to look like him and to represent him into the world? Are you going to live your life loving others, serving others, understanding that he set an example for us to follow? And then for the non-believers is this, are you going to surrender your life to him? Are, are you going to give it up? Are you going to let go of whatever's holding you back and just run to him? There, there's nothing greater than that. There's no, there's no greater love. We talked about his love and, and then his servant heart and how he addresses sin. There's nothing greater than Jesus. Just give it up and run to him. Are you going to acknowledge that someone died in your place and that through faith in him, you can have eternal life with him? So we have a decision. Every person in here, believers, you have a decision. Are you going to follow Christ daily? Are you going to pick up your cross and love and serve others? Non-believers, are you, are you going to give it up to Him? Like, what's, what's holding you back? What, what's holding you back from saying no? Are you going to you give it up to Him? So as we pray, listen, here's the question I want you to ask yourself one-on-one. Man, where am I in this yes or no category? Do I truly know Him or do I not? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. God, we just thank you for loving us. God, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sin. We thank you for this passage and just what it means, the way you love and serve others. God, I pray that our life just looks like that. God, I pray for the believers in here that we would would go looking at your example and live in our life following that example, God. God, then I pray for the non-believers in here. God, that they, that they know that they're on the wrong side, that they, they are no, they don't follow you. God, I pray that they would see that they need you. I'm just going to ask this. If you would be so bold, maybe God's talking to you right now. You know that you don't know him. You know he's, he's calling you to know him. If that's you in this room right now, just boldly raise your hand. for what you've done. God, we love you for the cross, just how good you are. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you, Connection Church. You are now dismissed.